You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Keith Thompson. He's a former semi-pro baseball player from France and an editorial cartoonist for Newsday. His first novel is Once a Spy. Thank you for speaking with me, Keith. Thanks for having me. Keith, this is a very interesting novel, and what I think really makes it so compelling is it's a, a rather humorous, character-driven novel about a, a son who kind of meets his father for the first time um, late in life. It's a serious topic, a, a spy who has Alzheimer's disease. I um, think that probably the, the the humor is just that the, the, the son... Um, Part and parcel of his estrangement from his father, uh, it, 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 he wa- cracks wise as a coping me- mechanism. The the uh, the aspect of, of uh, a spy with Alzheimer's disease is a really unique uh, observation. Now, where did you happen upon this? What made you um, uh, decide to create this character, the character of Drummond Clark, who's I think one of the most compelling characters I've read about in quite some time. Um, well, I'd like to take credit for that, but the fact of the matter is uh, it's based on, to some extent, a, a true story, um, and it's uh, not, not, a, not a short story, so you can cut me off or edit me any time, but I was once dating um, a young woman who um, we'll call Kelly today, and um, I was intimidated because she, her prior boyfriends uh, included the likes of an all-Big Ten quarterback uh, one of the youngest Fortune 500 CEOs, I think, ever at the time, and a financier who was equally successful, and not only that, was fluent in several languages. And this financier and I happened to have uh, gone to the same college, but and we graduated the same year, but we never hung out, probably because I, I only hung out with, with mortals. And I just suffered from comparisons from this pantheon of great uh, boyfriend's past until Kelly told me a story about the time that the financier took her home uh, to to Virginia for Thanksgiving, um, and his father uh, tragically um, had been forced into retirement in his early 60s. The father had been an I, uh, an IBM or a big big company like that uh, factory manager abroad, um, a big American company. He, he'd been in several foreign countries and. Wherever they were, the son would soak up the cultures and the languages, you know, on his way to becoming a worldly sophisticate. But the the father was a xenophobe of the Archie Bunker School. He'd go out of his way to procure Budweiser, and he'd just adamantly stick to speaking English. And uh, accordingly, that Thanksgiving, um, when my girlfriend Kelly uh, was in Virginia with the, the, the family, everybody was really surprised when the dad began speaking French fluently. And he looked around the table and, and took in the mystification, and he switched to German. And it turned out that uh, xenophobic uh, I, IBM factory manager and, and Budman had just been his cover. And it made me curious about what intelligence agencies do when operatives lose their ability to retain important secrets, and it served as the basis for, for Once a Spy, my novel. Now, um... One of the things that that's uh, very interesting about 
this novel is. Um, I, I think you've got a really great voice with, with uh, Charlie Clark. So talk about creating this this son who's something of a of a he's not quite a ne'er do well, but he's got himself in more than a, a spot of trouble. Um. Well, he is a professional horse player, and he is good at it, He, which means that if, if, to be a professional horse player and be good at it, you have to win 34% of the time. 33% you lose money, 34 you win enough to keep going back to the track every day. And um, to be that good, that puts you in the, in the, in the 99th percentile of, of, of people um, betting on the horses. To be that good, you have to have you have to be pretty smart. You have to have a lot of the same skills that a spy has in terms of observation and um, uh, noticing things and rem- remembering things. And um, uh, uh, but one of one of the things that he uh, that, that drives uh, horse players is the thrill of of being right uh, when everybody else is wrong uh, on a horse. Um, and he he feels well. Where else in the world can you get that? And so while he he's a really bright guy and uh, might have excelled, for instance, as a as a, as a spy or a, a, a hypersonic aircraft engineer, um, he you know never really got the gratification um, or the appreciation that that he might have otherwise uh, at home, and he he found it at the track. So he goes to the track to get the the thrill of being right, and I found that to be the case among horse horse players that I've spoken to. That's what drives them more than the money. Now, it's, it, you have such a, a great detailed vision of, of this, the, the life at the track, um, and it doesn't sound like you yourself uh, spend a lot of time there. Uh, talk about doing a, a researching, uh, you know, two worlds, both the world of spies and the world of the horse track, where people don't really uh, like somebody coming up and asking a bunch of questions. That can't be easy. I think my very first time out researching the world of horses, I'd never bet on a horse race. I went to an off-track betting parlor in New York City. I couldn't get anybody to talk to me. I finally just offered to, to, to pay for a horse, which was a $2 ticket, if, if somebody would talk to me, in which case they're very forthcoming. Um, and I was <laughs> able to get sources that way. Um, I've subsequently uh, done some reporting for a magazine called Garden and Gun. Are you are you familiar with it? No, no. Um, it, though my wife used to work for Guns and Ammo. Well, Garden and Gun is a magazine where if you're a reporter and you call up and you say, I'm with Garden and Gun, um, people will sing the Deliverance theme song back to you, uh, <laughs> or they'll hang up. Um, as, a, as opposed to, for instance, I do, I do a lot of reporting for the Huffington Post, in which case people generally take your call right away, or they'll scream at you for being a flaming liberal and, and hang up um, uh, just as, as quickly. Uh, Garden and Gun sent me to Keeneland uh, in Kentucky, um, which is where the Bluegrass Stakes is run. It's, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time with horse players and uh, breeders and um, jockeys and pretty much everybody involved at the track. Uh, in uh, researching an article, I was there for a week, so th- that was a, a great way to immerse myself in it, and I've maintained uh, contact with um, a, a lot of uh, the uh, horse players uh, subsequently. 
they've helped me with the book. A couple of them are in the acknowledgments. So, so you you act. This book in part grew out of your work for Garden and Gun. Then, um, Garden and Gun helped, and I should say uh, that Garden and Gun is a great magazine. It, it has a, a huge circulation, like three hundred thousand, and it really is sort of the New Yorker of the South. I, I live in the South, and uh, everybody, the the, the content is terrific. The the, the the name might have not been the best choice. <laughs> it sounds like something that uh, Charlie Clark might either think up or work for. <laughs> uh, it's it's named after a disco, and my understanding is it's named after a disco in Charleston, South Carolina. The the uh, publisher Rebecca Darwin, who I believe had been the publisher of the New Yorker or something high up at the New Yorker, uh, was from Charleston. She founded the magazine a couple of years ago. Um. The other aspect of this book that's, I think, really fascinating is, of course, all the, the, the spycraft and tradecraft and, and these kind of uh, secret lives. This is, uh, uh, I think, something that, you know, as you mentioned, is this, this whole, the premise of this whole book is something that, that we don't really consider because generally when we see spies or read about spies, they are hyper-competent. They are the nearest to perfect human beings you're going to read about, and, and we never consider that there might be some point in their careers when they have become less than competent. And, and this is also cut with the, you know, the, the true and actual tragedy of, of Alzheimer's. Um, so talk about uh, understanding the tradecraft that as it's practiced by people who are actually either merely competent, or as we see in Jason Bourne and any number of thrillers, hyper-competent, and then um, taking that through the filter of what happens to, you know, the tragedy of what happens to a man or a woman as they succumb to Alzheimer's. Um, well, I tried to think of my character just in terms of who he is, mm-hmm. um, first and foremost, uh, rather than his occupation. I mean, his occupation is part and parcel of who he is, and... Um, but for most of the book, he is a really dull guy who works for a middling appliance uh, uh, manufacturer and sells washing machines and dryers. And he, that's what he, he thinks he is. He's sort of forgotten or buried the uh, clandestine service part of his resume. Um, so uh, in, in terms of researching the book, I probably spent more time uh, re- researching appliance sales than uh, the clandestine service. Uh, that said, um, I have the luxury of uh, doing a lot of reporting on national security. That, that's mostly what I report on for the Huffington Post, and I have tons of sources. So anytime there was um, a tradecraft uh, question, I, 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 if, I, if I didn't know it myself, which I guess probably was seldom, I, I would just call up... Uh, some of my sources uh, and get the answers. Um, one of the talk about the the appliance business. <laughs> this sounds. This is pretty interesting. This. Uh, I mean, you've got this guy, as you say, a middling uh, appliance maker. Um, perhaps this is even more difficult to research than uh, spy tradecraft, especially for you. Well, I I I, I guess uh, the World Wide Web makes makes researching the uh, appliance sales business a little bit easier than 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 the old days. I mean, I to to research uh the Central Intelligence Agency, I had to actually go on a plane and and and, and go to the, the get clearance and go to the CIA for for most of my appliance sales. I just 
Googled it. Um, as you're, you know, uh, creating this character uh, of Drummond, uh, his, you know, his son is discovering the the the, ki- the father's actual character, and I think this is a very interesting uh, means uh, of of writing a book because generally, you know, fathers and sons know who they are and know what they've done all their lives, and this kind of discovery through this kind of uh, it's almost like a. Uh, uh, what's the flashing light at the disc, a strobe light uh, of, you know, stro- a strobing kind of uh, bits of, of, you know, clarity in, in Drummond's uh, character. Uh, the son gets to know the father. So talk about, um, you must have had, did you understand who Drummond was in full before his Alzheimer's struck? Um, and then subject the character whom you'd created to to the to the the disease or did you uh conceive of him um as we you know first encounter him as you say a kind of a a a dull guy who who has alzheimer's and probably needs a lot of help um i wish i had a authored sounding answer for that i thought of him as he was uh without the affliction. The affliction is essentially a veil that uh, manifests itself uh, as a a, a veil uh, over the the past and and the the present. Um, And so I sort of thought of him without the veil. He's a guy who's a patriot uh, in excess, uh, perhaps, because he um, has deprived his son of... uh, of, of basically himself uh, mm-hmm. in, in the service of his country, and uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's heroic. Maybe not. I, I mean, I mean uh, it, it depends on your, your views. Uh, but um, I, I guess I, I started with a, just a guy who was a, was a super patriot and, and took it from there. Now, uh, this novel also excels in having uh, well-crafted scenes of action. This is not, it always sounds much easier, I think. When you read it, it seems you experience it, you know, uh, kind of like a movie. Um, But I think that writing these kind of scenes where things are blowing up, people are being shot, there's, you know, uh, people running around with guns across a landscape. Uh, Talk about creating those landscapes. Did you go to the places where these things happen, or did you just uh, kind of craft them uh, while uh, sitting over your QWERTY keyboard? Well, I went to college in, in Manhattan before Rudy Giuliani cleaned it up. Mm. So I had, a, I had some experience with, uh, with, with gunfire. I went to, to college in Harlem and um, at Columbia. Uh, but th- that would be the extent of my experience with, with that. I guess the rest is probably just watching too much TV. <laughs> um, do, you, do you foresee... Um, with with this uh, novel, that you know, I actually, I have to say, I thought it was pretty funny, and it, 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 I actually, I think it, the, there's a lot of great humor in here that really livens it up. Um, yet it's also has this kind of uh, bleak and, and you know, genuinely affecting story. This is a lot of different, very different emotions to juggle. You know, you're you're um, as they say, blowing stuff up. You've got gun. Fire. You've got a tender kind of father-son story with Alzheimer's. That's your back on the Lifetime channel there. Uh, then you're you're 
um, you've got a spy story. Talk about juggling these different effects and, and you know, using, I think the humor kind of comes in the friction between these different aspects of the story. Well, first of all, I, I, I really didn't mean it to be funny. Um, mm, like I didn't. said, there's just one <laughs> character who cracks wise a, a lot, and if, if you think that's funny, well, I'm, I'm, that, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm flattered. Um, and I, I think that um, just there's, there's a central conflict in, in each scene uh, and, and in the book in general. Um, and if that manifests itself in a gunfight, it's really not that much different uh, from a dramatic standpoint than a scene where um, a guy works at a Walmart and his boss is firing him. And the difference in the clandestine service is that you know, people are literally firing uh, guns, and no, no pun intended, and um, things escalate and uh, a little bit, and th- th- that's why buildings get blown up in this book. But um, it's really not intended to be gratuitous. It's just sort of, in each instance, stemming from uh, the individual scenes, and it just so happens that these people uh, are having uh, job trouble uh, in, in the clandestine service, and that's why there's a lot of stuff blowing up. Now, uh, as far as the, the clandestine service aspects of this novel, uh, they seem uh, rivetingly convincing and, and really quite contemporary. Um, when you're writing a book like this, do you think about maybe how it's going to read five years from now? Or, or I mean, did you did you have the kind of experience? Uh, I know many people who who were writing novels when the, when you know the wall went down, <laughs> and said, "Well, oh, there goes that novel." <laughs> did you have any of those kind of experiences? Well, I I think one of the things that that you want to do when you're writing thrillers is have lots of gadgets, and I like spy gadgets, so I I'm, I happen to be in the know about them, and that's great. And one and um, I, and also my main characters are being hunted by spies who are up on the latest gadgets and have a lot of the latest surveillance technology. So that that comes into play in this book. Um, Doubleday bought this book in July 2008. Um, and in the book, uh, there's a, a, a few scenes where the main characters are being hunted uh, through the woods of, of northern Virginia. The basic plot is that the old man has things in his head that his colleagues would uh, uh, prefer that he didn't share with uh, anybody. Um, so, so they're trying to kill him, and they're tracking him using... Uh, surveillance drones, and um, when I wrote about them at the time, I, I thought it was pretty cutting edge. I uh, wrote a story for the Huffington Post about uh, a surveillance drone, and by surveillance drone, I mean unmanned, a robotically, uh, remote, remotely piloted unmanned aerial vehicle, um, like a, a predator. Um, I wrote a story for the Huffington Post about a year ago about the combat, which is uh, looks and acts just like a bat and can fly into a cave and Tora Bora and perch and hang upside down and, really? and record for something like 48 hours. Um, and, um, Boy, that's amazing. <laughs> and and uh, so, so there, are, there are drones in my book that are doing kind of amazing feats uh, or feats that were considered amazing at the time, but I've subsequently written about five articles on drones for the Huffington Post, and I think that drone is becoming... It's, it's actually a misnomer. Uh, the, the Air Force 
uh, pretty much everybody involved in drones hate it when you say drones, but I think they're losing that battle. Um, that's what they're going to be called. But um, the subsequently, they, they've really uh, come into public uh, awareness um, uh, quite a bit, and I suspect a year from now, hopefully, people will still be buying this book. Um, you know, it'll be there'll be like eight track play, players. <laughs> Well, I you know um, also there's at, at this point though they some of that stuff like when you told me about that the the combat that almost sounds like something out of uh, you know a science fiction novel so it, it's kind of weird to be uh, <clears throat> to be living in a time when technology process moves so quickly that you can tell me something that uh, sounds like something maybe out of the next James Cameron movie and. Uh, think that by next year, people are going to be going, oh, wow, you know, everybody will have their own predator drones looking for their kids. The, co- the combats uh, are being developed at the University of Michigan at a cost of something like, you know, I, I, I really don't remember. I should look it up. But I, it's a $25 million project to develop them. But right now, there are drones that um, can go a couple thousand feet up in the air. Uh, the, the British police are testing out a two-and-a-half-pound uh, drone. It looks like a miniature helicopter, and it basically does everything that a police helicopter does um, in search of perpetrators and then some. It's, it's found actually a couple of Alzheimer's victims lost in the woods where a helicopter couldn't go. A lot of times, uh, even with infrared, um, you can't find people in, in deep woods. And uh, these little uh, micro-drones, as they're called, uh, these two-and-a-half-pound Drones, which cost forty thousand dollars, have uh, enabled the London police to successfully do it. Um, and right now, they're forty thousand dollars. And uh, incidentally, uh, I'm, I'm one of them is, is coming to my to my reading in in uh, Coral Gables, Florida. Um, one of these drones. Um, oh right. <laughs> um, so they're forty thousand dollars now. So and and they're they're two and a half pounds. And um, so what is that? I mean, three years from now, um, probably you'll be able to go to Walmart and buy one that's the size of a pencil and uh, do whatever you want with it. Um, it's It'll be a whole brave new world. Uh, can you tell me what you're working on now? Are, will we see more uh, of Charlie? I'm just about done with the sequel. It's tentatively called Twice a Spy. <laughs> oh, I look forward to reading it greatly because um, Charlie cracks wise really well. This uh, you're you're up there in Joe R. Lansdale territory, as far as I'm concerned. I thought this was a very enjoyable book, and you yet you have the kind of you know the the pith and the the heft of a of as I say, it's an interesting uh, father son novel as well. Thank you. I've been speaking with Keith Thompson. His new novel is Once a Spy. Thank you for joining me, Keith. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>